Well, good morning. My name is Matt Zielich. I'm the Student Life Pastor, uh, and I realize that standing here today, I look a little bit different than the last time I took this stage. Some people get haircuts. Uh, I got hair off all the way, and uh, it was a shock to some people. Uh, to give you some context, my grandpa uh, did not have hair. He was bald. He was a bald man at 25, so I beat him a couple years. And uh, when we were young, like, he used to do this thing where he'd push the hair, like, across. What's that called? Like, uh, come over, there it is. And uh, my dad would always remind me when I was a kid, like, hey, Matt, one day you're not going to have hair, like any good father would. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I realized, like, I was getting at an age where, um, like, getting ready, I'm like, oh, no, it's getting a little thin. But if I just push this hair across, no one will know, like a magician. And I realized, like, oh, no, it's happening to me. So, all gone. Uh, I had someone that I was really close with uh, when I was younger, and they saw me, and they're like, what did you do? Like, wh why would you do that? Like, I don't, I don't like that. And I was like, oh, you know, soon you won't even notice, because right now I'm thinking that you and I are going to speak a lot less. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, well, welcome. And uh, if you've not been here uh, we have been going through a series called Bless This Mess. In our world, similar to the world uh, of the Bible, people are asking the question, how do we become blessed? What does that mean? What does that look like? I think at some level, every single one of us wants to be blessed. In, in the areas of our lives where it's not perfect, where there's tension, or um, we just dream up something better, we desire God's blessing. If we were blessed, things would be better. And so Jesus comes onto the scene, and what we've been doing is working through Matthew chapter 5, through what is Jesus's most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. And what Jesus does in this passage is he actually starts to offer sort of an upside-down ideology of God's blessing. And so uh, if you have your journal or if you have your Bible in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 9, uh, we're going to look at this one passage in particular. Blessed are those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. According to Jesus, if we want to be blessed, we need to work for peace. Now, what does that mean? actually? How do we do that? How do we work for peace? Uh, in order to get there, I want to talk about a few things uh, today. I want to talk about the heavens and the earth. We'll start small. And then uh, I want to move on to YouTube and the worst prank I've ever seen. And then I want to talk about why only the bad guys have red lightsabers. And then I want to talk about why we say sorry. Are you guys ready? Can we do that? Yes. yes. Awesome. All right, let's pray. And invite God's Spirit to speak to us. Heavenly Father, we give you this time, and we, we pause for just a moment before we dive into this concept, because we want to be attentive to the way that your Spirit is working and moving in this space. We know that you are here, and so we simply put ourselves in a posture to invite that Spirit to speak to us to work in our hearts, to work in our minds, and at an individual and a corporate level, understand what it means to work for peace. In Jesus' name, amen. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Verse 2 says this, Now the earth was shapeless and empty. It was void. And from that passage on, we, we get a story of how God took this raw material and he maneuvers it and he orchestrates it and he gives it intentionality and purpose. And through a series of creative events, God looks at what he created and he steps back and we learn in scripture that he says, it is good. This is good. There's an ancient Hebrew word that captures what we see at this point in Scripture, and that word is shalom. If you're translating uh, from the Hebrew into English, that word is translated as peace. But I realized in my life when I think about peace, uh, my mind automatically jumps to uh, the absence of conflict. When I think about peace, I think that what we're talking about is that there's no conflict, but shalom as it's translated from scripture, is way, way more intricate than that. In fact, has little to do with conflict because when God said it is good, when we have a picture of shalom, there was no conflict. Instead, it's about something else. We see here that, that it goes beyond peace. It's, it's wholeness, it's health and blessing. I love these two lines below here. That shalom essentially is universal flourishing. It's harmony with yourself, your neighbor, the earth, and God. When we are in shalom, we are in rhythm, we are in sync with what God envisioned for our lives. That's the picture that we get to. Think about any time in your life that you experienced a moment of joy or prosperity. Maybe a moment where you feel like you have used, you've exercised your full potential where you felt like life was full, like things were good in your relationships, that you were one, you were in harmony with everything around you. When you say in those moments, this is good, you can substitute that phrase with that's shalom. That's what the Bible is trying to describe, the picture, and that's a taste that we get in our own lives. So the question is how do we get back to shalom? How do we arrive there? Uh, I love to watch YouTube videos. I'm assuming a couple people in this room also like to watch YouTube videos. Maybe you wouldn't even admit it. Uh, but as a youth pastor, it's part of my job. I have to watch YouTube videos to stay updated. Yeah, someone's got to do it. You know, I carry my cross. But uh, I, I love watching YouTube videos, and they're so helpful. Like, think about, think about how YouTube has shaped us at some level. Like, we are so much more efficient because we can share and spread knowledge way easier than ever before. If you want to do something, you like, I want to learn how to build something, you can go on YouTube and you can watch a video and someone can show you how to do that thing. It's amazing. So um, I go on YouTube and, and, I, and I watch my video, but I've realized 
that there's something that happens when I watch a YouTube video. That if on the screen is the video that I'm watching, just over here on the right I call uh, the tornado, the black hole. And here's what that is. These are the videos on the right-hand column that YouTube suggests that you watch as well. Okay, now that sounds very helpful. Thanks, YouTube. But you get sucked in and your life just simply disappears. It, I mean, like, there is, uh, there, YouTube has a, has a mind, has a personality. It thinks it knows you. Like, hey, Matt, you were watching this video on how to refinish a picnic table. How about watching how to repair your refrigerator? <laughs> All right, and I watch, and I just get caught up in this cycle, and, like, so much time passes. I realize, like, it's been an hour, and I start with this video on how to finish a picnic table, and an hour later, I'm watching Panda does a somersault 10 times in a row. It go, and I'm like, how, how did I get here? How did I land? And I, and I look at the time, and I'm just like, I'm so ashamed of myself. I'm like, I can't, why am I sitting here wasting time watching these stupid, pointless videos? I have got to stop after this next one real quick. I just, it, it never stops. And so I get caught up in the YouTube vortex, the black hole, as I call it, um, because it, it makes all of these suggestions. So one time in particular, I'm watching YouTube, and uh, it decides that what I want to watch are prank videos. Now, I do like prank videos. I wasn't watching prank videos at the time, but I decided, yeah, YouTube, you're right. I want to watch that. So I start clicking on a couple prank videos. And these are videos where people uh, are just playing practical jokes on each other. They're college roommates, uh, siblings, and they're just doing all this funny stuff, and it's hilarious. I love it. I just watch one after the other after the other, and now I'm hooked, so I just keep going. And all of a sudden, I see one on, on the, the suggestions that says wedding prank, and I'm thinking to myself, like, oh, that's going to be good. It's, I bet the groomsmen did something hilarious. Everyone had a good laugh. Uh, but if you're familiar with YouTube or social media at all, you know that uh, people have an agenda. People make videos and they want to try to get a, a bunch of likes and a bunch of comments and a bunch of subscribers, and they'll do anything at any cost to do that. So I watch a video uh, of a prank that was at a wedding, and I did not think it was funny whatsoever. I assume it's real. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe like that was part of it. It was, it was all set up. Maybe you think it was real, and you're so shocked and... Like, that's, that, that's why they get all these subscribers. But based on what I could tell, I assumed that this was a real prank. Someone filmed, and then they posted. And here's what happened. Here's, here was the setting. So there's a couple at a wedding. And uh, they're, they're taking photos. Their wedding party's there. It's beautiful. The bride looks gorgeous. Uh, everyone's having a good time. Everyone's smiling. And uh, they're just taking photos. So as they're taking photos, uh, where they were, there was kind of a mountain range in the back, and there was a pond um, at their venue. And so uh, the bride kind of hops up uh, to the side of the pond, and, and the groom hops up there as well. And they're just taking all of these photos. And the camera that's shooting this, this video is, is pretty far away, so, which makes me think, like, I don't know that everyone was in on this. And, uh, and a guy out of nowhere just runs to the side and pushes both of them into the pond gives a thumbs up to the camera and runs away. And I'm watching this and I'm horrified. I'm like, that is not funny because w what you see in the video is just everyone being crushed. I mean, the bride, the groom, her parents, their friends, their family. And, and as I think about this, I go back to this idea of shalom. If I could picture in my mind what, what an image, what a metaphor of what shalom is like, 
It's a picture of a wedding. It's a picture of people being united, coming together, everything working in order, celebrating, living into the joy of that moment. That's a picture at some level of shalom. And so since we know that we don't fully live in shalom, what took place after that is a picture of the disruption. The Bible calls this sin, and I, and I love this definition of sin. Maybe it's different than anything that you've heard before. In a way, you can use sin in this, in this sense, that it's the, it's the culpable disturbance of shalom. I think, in t- in, you know, in our faith, we think about sin, and we say, oh, it's just breaking the rules. God has a list of rules, and don't break those, and if you do, then you sin, and you gotta stop doing that. But this changes the dialogue for me if I think about sin in these terms, that, that there's this, there's order to what God has created. There's design, there's intentionality, and all of that is good. It creates harmony with all things. And sin simply comes in and pushes the bride into the water. It just disrupts it, and it leaves things messy. So if it's not a surprise to you, I would argue that we do not live fully in shalom in our world. There's a mess, right? Can we agree that there's a mess around us? And when we acknowledge that there's a mess, we think back to like the conflicts that we've had. We think about, you know, what creates that tension. And we then start to ask the next question. Well, who's to blame, right? Like, yeah, you're right. There is a better way. It should be like that. Who's to blame? Why? Why do we experience this? In 1977, a movie came out, and it's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's called Star Wars. And uh, before it was Star Wars A New Hope, that was the title they later uh, gave it when they continued to make these movies. It was just called Star Wars. And anyone who was anxious to see that movie was anxious to imagine a reality where people would go into space and fight this epic battle. And when the movie was created, George Lucas had a ton of people around him uh, saying, giving advice, this isn't going to work, people aren't going to buy into this, it's going to cost too much money, you can't really make this movie. But he had a dream, he moved forward, and he made Star Wars, and it was a huge hit. And if you've ever seen Star Wars, hopefully you have, I told First Service, if you haven't seen Star Wars, I give you full permission to right now leave this church and go watch Star Wars. They're making, it's only getting better. I love it. Uh, but in, in the movie Star Wars, in the first one that was ever made, A New Hope, uh, early on in the movie, there's a character that enters. And this character is wearing all black, and he has a mask, and he has a, a, a breathing sound. And that character is who? Darth Vader. Yes, Darth Vader. And before Darth Vader ever has a line, before he does anything, you know from his very entrance into the scene that Darth Vader is the bad guy. And if you watch all of the other Star Wars movies, if you watch any, any number of them that they've ever made, because they continue to make them after this, you'll notice that there's a common theme that in every Star Wars movie, the bad guy wears all black and he has a red lightsaber. You're brand new to Star Wars and a character has a red lightsaber. Automatically, here's the hint, I'll, I'll help you out. He's the bad guy, right? That's what, I mean, that's how we know. In fact, when, when George Lucas made this narrative, he has a story 
to tell, a story that involves all kinds of characters, heroes and villains. And, and he needs you, if the story's going to work, he needs you to identify who are the heroes and who are the villains early on, because if you know early on who are the heroes and who are the villains, you can start to evaluate their motives. You start to identify what they're trying to accomplish. And you make your judgments based off of those descriptions, based off of those archetypes, the mold that they play. So here's the issue in our own lives. When you have tension with someone, when you have conflict, when you want to battle it out, we don't break out into lightsaber fights, and we don't know who's carrying the red lightsaber. Am I right? I mean, that's, that's sort of the issue. That's the tension. When we're having conflict, when we want to point the finger, place blame, who is the villain? What narrative do we live out of? How do we identify who these characters are? One of the things that, that we do at this church, we support a, a, an organization, a program called Teach One to Lead One. If you're unfamiliar with what this is, uh, basically we have volunteers that go into the schools, public schools, and uh, specifically for kids who are, who are at risk, so maybe they're getting into trouble or maybe they have special education needs, whatever that is, um, we try to work with these middle school and high school students and teach what we call universal principles. And these universal principles are intended to do this. They're, they're supposed to guide and protect us. We tell these students, if you follow these universal principles, they are going to help you be successful in life. So some of these principles are like integrity or teamwork or compassion, things that it's like, yeah, if you do those things, it's going to help you out in life. Um, so we start going through the curriculum. I'm, I'm at the, the middle school, so I work in a classroom with sixth graders. And uh, we're, we, we take our time through the curriculum. We've, we've maneuvered through it. But finally, we come to the universal principle, respect. And so we start asking all these kids these questions. What does it mean to respect? And they, they, they jump in. They have all of these answers. They want to participate. It's very exciting. So one of the questions that we ask is, well, who are the people that you should respect? Like, how, who, who are those people? And so, so students are raising their hands and say, oh, our, our teachers, we should respect our teachers. And our parents, we should respect our parents. And some of you are like, wait, they say that? No, I don't see that at home, but it's okay. And, and so uh, they're, they're giving all these answers to these questions. Uh, and, and my class is not very big. This, this sixth grade class is about like 12 to 15 kids, and there's only one black kid in the class. And he finally raises his hand and he, uh, to the question, who are the people that we should respect? And he says, well, police officers. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, that's a good example. Why, why should we respect police officers? And this kid says, well, if you, like, if you don't respect police officers, if you argue with them, they will shoot you. And, 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 and so someone protests, and they're like, no, 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 that's not true. They can't do that. And he says, no, yeah, they can. If you argue with a police officer, he can shoot you. And I'm sitting here in this classroom listening to this, trying to navigate the conversation, like, what do I do or say? And I'm realizing that, of course, like, there's laws in place that's not allowed. Like, you can't just do that. But that doesn't even matter. Here's the point. Sometimes we live out of a different narrative than the people around us. And when you live out of a different narrative, there starts to be separation. And then there's division. And then there's tension. And then there's hostility. And in this narrative we're trying to play out, we can't identify 
Who are the heroes and who are the villains? And I know that came from a sixth grade kid. I once had a sixth grade kid try to convince me that her great grandma invented spaghetti. So I get like, you gotta take it in context with a grain of salt. But I thought it was, I thought it was an eye opener to show that like side by side, sometimes we live in a different world than other people. Our story plays out in a different way. The characters play different parts. So what do we do with that? How do we navigate this division, this tension, and it certainly gets messy. Last night, I'm so bummed. Uh, I, wish, like, I wish I would have watched this before now because I would have used a clip, but uh, just last night, I saw the movie Hidden Figures. Has anybody seen that movie? It is so stinking good. You've got to see that movie. I loved it. Uh, if you're not familiar with what Hidden Figures is, it's a story uh, of these black women who were in NASA and helped you know, get, get you know, the United States into space. Uh, and they made a significant contribution. But uh, during the time, there's segregation, uh, and so black people didn't have the same rights, they weren't looked at the same way, and so all of a sudden, their, their gifts and talents were kind of being um, diminished, their contribution to the project, they weren't being valued. And so there's this amazing scene, I love it, I wish I could show it, but I'll just describe it. Um, there's a black woman and a white woman and they kind of meet up in the bathroom. And all movie long, this, this woman, this black woman is saying, I should be the, the supervisor. I should be supervisor. I'm, I am doing the job of a supervisor, but I'm not getting the credit or the pay. And so we need a supervisor. I should do that. And this other woman is constantly just trying to just to sidestep that. No, we can't do that. We won't let you do that. Here's why. And she, she just kind of creates and puts roadblocks in the way to keep that from happening. Well, as the movie progresses, this character, this white woman, she starts um, becoming a little bit sympathetic, like seeing you know, the weight of her actions, how it's impacting the people around her. So she's starting to kind of come around, and they meet up in, in this moment in the bathroom. And uh, she finally says, this, this white woman says to this black woman, you know, I just want you to know, I don't have a problem with you people. And the black woman says this, and I think that this captures the essence of narrative. She says, I know that you believe that that's true. Isn't that how it plays out? In our own minds, in our own narratives, we are innocent. I didn't do anything wrong. I don't have a problem. But here's the issue. When you're always the hero, if you're always innocent in your own narrative, you can justify anything you do. When we think about like history and we think like to the Holocaust and I say all the time, how is there ever, ever in our history a time when people went along with that? They're like, yeah, let's get behind this cause. Or, or slavery, like we say like now in hindsight, it is so blatantly obvious, how could we ever do that? The reason that that existed was because of the narrative. There was a group of people who lived out a narrative that justified everything that they did. Because in their narrative, they're not the villain. They don't have the red lightsaber. What they're doing is okay. And I play this part all the time. It's really challenged me to consider, how has my narrative, how has the story I live out in my mind start to negatively impact 
the people around me, especially the people closest to me. You guys ever heard like the, the expression, you, sometimes we treat strangers better than our, the people we love and care about the most? It's, like, it's so true in my own life. I can be patient and understanding with strangers, but then I'll just harbor this resentment and frustration and unleash it on the people that I love the most. How many of you in your family, you like, you have to figure out a system uh, or there's maybe just an unspoken rule of who gets control of the remote control for the TV. A couple of people like, oh, I know who gets the remote control. And maybe you're like, maybe both of you are saying, I know, and you have different answers. That's the narrative working. Um, you know, things like that, like fighting over the TV, can, it can start small. Maybe, maybe this is like an argument that, that you have in your house. You say, you know, it's, I just get really frustrated because I want to watch, you know, uh, Real Housewives of New York and The View and The Bachelor, and I don't like any of the shows that she wants to watch. And so what do we, like, what do, we do with that? <laughs> I, I say that because there's so many guys, that are like, oh, The Bachelor, I would never watch that. What a dumb show. And 35 minutes in, they're like, you know, I like Jason's personality, but I don't know that he's emotionally ready for a committed relationship. <laughs> it's true, it's true. But, but you have an argument, maybe a small tension, and it starts out small. But a lot of times what happens is that can build and build and build. And, and what was a tiny little argument over something silly ultimately becomes a 24-hour or a 48-hour all-on war. And you can reach like Hulk-level rage over something when that continues to build up. And here's the reality, we, every one of us, like it, it doesn't matter in, in any of our relationships, whether you're single, if you're a couple, if you're married, if you're a parent, if you have a friend, if you are working with coworkers, if you're a grandparent, in every area of our lives, in our relationships, we have tension. There is conflict. Here's, here's what it says in, in Romans chapter 12. I think this is such an important passage. It says this, Paul says, never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. There, there's a different uh, philosophy for a long time in my marriage that my wife and I had, and here's what it was. In any conflict, there should be two apologies. And my perspective was absolutely, you should apologize twice. <laughs> That's, don't say that, I've learned, don't say that, that's a bad idea. Um, it is funny though. So I, <laughs> she, would, she believes that like in any conflict, there should be two apologies. Two people contributing to the conflict, hurting each other, should apologize for their actions. I, I fundamentally disagreed with this for several years and here's why. Here was my perspective. I believed that uh, if some person does something to initiate a wrong. So whatever that is, if something's said, if something's done, if some person does something to initiate a wrong towards another person, then anything that takes place after that is a response to that initial wrong thing. So if I could like maneuver the conversation, the argument, and come to the point where I identify that you are the person who initiated the wrong, like you did the first wrong thing, I don't have to apologize for the things I did after that because it would have never happened if you didn't do that first thing. 
Now, as I say that, I realize some of you are like, that is the most articulate, greatest way that that has ever been said. I like that. And the rest of you are like, oh my goodness, this guy's a pastor at this church. Like, I, what an idiot. <laughs> and it's true. I had that. I, that's how I felt, which was convenient for me because as long as I could, like, navigate my way a, around an, an argument, I would never have to take responsibility for anything that I did. And guess what? That caused a lot of problems. And that's what happens in any of our tensions, in any of our conflicts. When we don't take responsibility for the mess we contribute, for the ways that we bring conflict, we are not going to have peace. We are not going to bring in shalom. And that's what Jesus is getting us back to. That's the movement that he desires for each and every one of us. You are blessed when you work for peace. So here's the final thing. How do we work for peace? How do we get there? I've got four things I think are helpful. And these things, although I think they're helpful, that's not like all of it. It's not like the end. This is not like the perfect session on, on, all, on everything. It's just to get us started. This is just to help us out and make those first moves. But number one is identify the conflict. We need to identify what is the real issue taking place. Maybe you relate to this, but sometimes I will have an argument with someone over something that's small, but, but, but magically and quickly becomes gigantic. And I start to realize, man, I'm not actually really that mad or upset about this little thing. I'm really upset about this other thing that happened a couple of days ago that really bothered me and I held my tongue. And now I'm bringing that into this little issue. That happens to me all the time. I start to have conflict about things that, that have nothing to do with what I'm actually arguing. So it's all about, we need to, number one, you gotta identify the conflict. What's really wrong? What's, what's really wrong? Not just the symptoms of what's going on. What's the disease? What's underneath the surface? Identify the conflict. Number two is this. You gotta own your part. If you bring mess, if you bring tension and conflict and toxicity into any, any instance of, of your relationships, in any circumstance, you have got to own that part. Because part of owning that is your role in restoring the disturbance that you brought to the shalom, to the peace. It doesn't matter who disturbed what, first, second, third, greater or less, whatever part you've contributed negatively, you have to own that part. Here's a third one, and I think, like, this is a step, which is, might seem silly, but be hopeful. Be hopeful is a step, and here's why. Because you can do the first two things easy enough. I'll identify the conflict, and I'll own up to my part, but if you're not hopeful, if you approach that dialogue saying, you know, it's a lost cause, They'll never come around. We'll never be in sync. They'll never see my way or my perspective. They don't care about me. They're just selfish. If you approach the dialogue with that mentality, you have already lost. You have to be hopeful. It's a step in this process. I love this quote. Um, I don't know who said it, so I'll take credit for it. It says, when it comes to working for peace, you're either hopeful or you're part of the problem. I, I love that line. I think it's so true. If we're not hopeful that there can be a change, that we can work things out, that there's a better tomorrow, 
we will not get there. And here's a fourth one. Fight for peace. Now, that doesn't mean like violently or hostily. Like that's not the point. The point is this. With the same energy, with, with, with the same motivation that you would fight for anything, fight for peace. Fight for peace like you want it more than anything. Because sometimes I just don't want peace. I'm okay living in conflict with people that I don't like. Sometimes I just don't want to fight for peace. If there's tension and there's division, so be it. I'll, live, I'll move on. Good luck to them. I, I have got to fight for peace like that's the number one objective of my life. Fight for peace. Now, here's, here's the final thing. I wrote this line down um, because it's, I hope it's a reminder to us. There is pain and struggle on the path to peace. Because as I talk about this, I, ho- I hope you're motivated, inspired. Maybe you can identify in your own life some of those conflicts, some of that tension. Okay, here it is. Yes, I'm going to leave here. I'm going to fix this. It's going to be great. Please know it's not easy. There is pain and struggle on the path to peace. And in case you missed it, I did this to help you out so you really get the point. There is pain and struggle on the path to peace. I promise you, there is no conflict that you have that at some level addressing it is not going to be difficult. It's going to be challenging. It might bring you pain. It might bring you struggle, some more than others, but either way, that is what's ahead. Just know that. Because if you can take the step knowing that in the back of your mind, I got to address this conflict. I got I to gotta bring peace. If you begin by saying, this is going to be tough, that's at least the mentality you need to take that first step. Because when it, when it is tough, you're not going to be shocked by it. You're not going to run scared because you knew it was coming. This is going to be hard, but it's worth it because I'm going to fight for peace. I'm going to bring shalom back wherever I can because that's how I receive God's blessing. That's when I'm blessed. So here's a final challenge. If, if you're like, okay, what do I do specifically? How can I do this? I found this to be in my own life beneficial um, Matt was like, hey, do you want to teach on this last week? It's about peace. And so the last couple weeks as I've been thinking about this, it's kind of like an opportunity and exercise. How can I, as I talk about peace to a bunch of people, how can I practice this? What can I do? And so here's what I did. And here's my challenge because I thought it was helpful. Initiate an apology for some disturbance of shalom. Wherever you find that, whatever you did, initiate is the most important part of this. Because for me, sometimes I will come around to apologizing. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. After, you know, you say it first, right? That was, that's been my philosophy. So instead, as I was praying, and I asked the Spirit, like, you know, how, reveal in me where I have created disturbance in shalom. God was like, uh, okay, and spoke very clearly to me, and I got it. I was like, okay, that's, that's enough. That's enough, Spirit. I got it. Like, no more. That's, that, I'll, I'll work on that one. So, I got a sense of like, okay, here's, here's one thing I did last week. Um, and, and as I kind of like wrestled with that, I realized in that situation, like we, we weren't currently experiencing tension, me and this person. Like we had moved on. So it, it wasn't like there was, oh man, we see each other, we're angry. Like we never, we never like worked it out. There still was conflict, but we both just kind of moved on. 
which is like, oh, in my mind, I was like, yeah, I got away with this. This is great. But the spirit was like, no, no, no. If you want to do this, even though you're not fighting, even though you, you're great when you see this person, you simply go and you initiate an apology out of nowhere. And so I did that. I, I, I went to them and I said, hey, I owe you an apology. And here's why. Here's what I did um, to, to bring negative things into this relationship. And I, I wish I could tell you that like by doing that, there was like fireworks and cannonballs and it wasn't anything spectacular. But, but here's what it did. It was my way of doing what I can to restore shalom. And that was worth it because it showed this person, even though we weren't even fighting, you care about me and you care about your contribution to my life and the ways you may have hurt me. So if you're willing, that's my challenge. Initiate an apology wherever you think you need to.